Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're here with Hannah Elliott, staff writer at Bloomberg News, covering the luxury sector. While we're an art podcast, from time to time, it's fascinating to take a look at some of the other luxury goods, uh, especially as we see some crossover with the auction houses that are selling art. Uh, They're not just selling art, they're selling other things as well. Um, And one of those is classic cars. Hannah covers the classic car market for Bloomberg, and she was in Monterey a few weeks ago for the biggest classic car auction of the year. And she's kind enough to join us to talk about the auction and the classic car market. Hannah, it's great having you on. How are you doing? Hey, thanks so much. It's great to be on. I um, I really appreciate your coverage, and you're right. I think this is a really exciting time to be following these these um, sales. So thanks for having me. Definitely. So the biggest headline uh, from the auctions was the 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO that sold for 48.4 million, the highest price ever for a car at auction. And when I see this, I turn to the art market. And I think this is kind of similar to the art market where we have these trophy pieces that make incredible prices a few times a year uh, and gets all of the media attention, but it isn't really necessarily too revealing about the health of the broader art market. Um, so maybe that's the same for the classic car market, but there's still probably a fascinating story here as to where the car came from and why it's set an auction record. So if you could tell us a little, little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah, that's it's a that's a great point on all fronts. Um, I'll kind of work backwards. You're right. There is um, a, a great history behind this car. Um, first of all, it, it the the previous record before this was for a 19, three, 1963 model of the same car that sold for 38 million um, in 2014. So this one blew that one out of the water. Um, the seller was a man named Greg Witten, who actually started at Microsoft. Um, uh, long, long, long ago, back when it was um, kind of a risk to join it. So he he made good on that risk, and he had bought the car in 2000. Um, this is basically a one of 36 car um, that Ferrari made in, uh, in the 1960s. I mean, it, everyone says it's the Holy Grail Ferrari. Um, the, Ferrari the, the racing Ferraris in general are kind of like the blue chip cars of the auction world. Um, and this one is really special because it had won so many races. Um, it won this prestigious race called the Targa Florio um, in 1963, and then had over 15 class and overall wins from 1902 to 1965. It sounds kind of obscure now, but back in the day, those were really major races um, that really gave this car quite a racing pedigree. Um, so that combined with the fact that it's so rare, um, it's got this beautiful Scaglietti coach work, um, makes it really special. Um, and, and also along with this car comes really exclusive access to a lot of the world's most prestigious car rallies and car shows. A lot of, a lot of the time it's the cars that are invited to shows, not the owner. Interesting. <laughs> so the owner's kind of interchangeable, but the car is, the car is the standard. So when you own this car, you have this golden ticket to be a part of really cool rallies and shows all over the world, like Pebble Beach itself. Um, so part of that adds to the prestige of, of getting this car. Um, but you are right when you say that, yes, this is a, a world record sale, but it's not necessarily indicative of the broader market in general, even the market for Ferraris, um, which is interesting. I um, talked with the guys at Haggerty 
um, after this sale. And they actually said the take rate, the sell-through rate for how many Ferraris were offered versus how many were actually bought was only about half, which is terrible. Um, and that was down from 68% in 2017. So it's very interesting that yes, this Ferrari did sell well and it is a Holy grail car, but in general, the market for Ferraris has really settled out. Um, and, and the sell through rate for them was even less than last year. So something interesting to know. And so you were there for the auctions in California. Um, it'd be great if you could share with us some context in terms of just how many auctions are there during that time period, how many cars Mm -hmm. are being auctioned off and how important is this auction period uh, within the classic car calendar? This is this week. This it's called Monterey Car Week. All um, it's it's the days leading up to the Pebble Beach Concord de la Gange, which is Sunday. Now before that, um, all of the world's major auction auction houses have sales leading up to the concourse. So there are six major auction houses um, that were included in in the major sales. That's Bonhams, Gooding and Co., Meekum. R.M. Sotheby's, Russo and Steel, and then Worldwide Auctioneers. Um, those six auction houses sold 849 cars um, that brought in a total of $371 million. Now, they offered over 1,000 cars, um, but about 850 cars actually sold for the weekend. Um, and that $371 million is an increase over last year. Again, this is like a double-digit increase over the sales from 2017, which is good. I mean, things are selling. Um, prices are relatively high, but it's, it's very exciting. I mean, people really look at these auctions centered around the Monterey, Monterey car week as very indicative of what to expect for the rest of the year. Um, it certainly attracts a lot of international buyers. Uh, it certainly attracts a lot of just, um, attention from people who are going to be selling their cars privately later on. They kind of watch these auctions to see, okay, you know, this is how Jaguars are doing. This is how Porsches are doing. This is how Mercedes are doing. It's it's very indicative of what people can expect later on. And so, yeah, when you look at the auction results and you analyze them, were there some major takeaways, either in terms of just the health of the overall classic car market and even drilling down, were there certain uh, brands and types of cars that really outperformed and maybe there were others that were softening? Yeah, um, there are a couple things. The first, kind of like I mentioned before, is that Ferraris and Porsches are really the markets have corrected. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, a few years ago, prices on Porsches and Ferraris especially were very high, um, like higher than they probably should have been. And I'm sure it's the same in the, in the art world where you kind of just can tell, wow, we're really on a high bubble here and it's going to burst pretty soon. Um, so that has happened, which is great because that means we're getting some more realistic um, offer and sale prices um, for, for, you know, 1970s eras, Porsches and 1960 era racing Ferraris, which I mentioned before. Um, another really good thing, um, that is a good indicator of a healthy market is that people are willing to pay premium, uh, prices for the very best examples. Um, and by best examples, I mean, cars that have low mileage that are relatively rare in pristine mint condition. Um, low, low mileage doesn't necessarily mean no mileage. It is nice to see some miles on these cars because it means they've been driven and they've been tested and they might have a good story behind them. Um, but low mileage does mean it, a car has 
fewer miles on it than the other similar models in that segment. Um, people are willing to pay for those. For instance, uh, you know, there was um, a 2002 BMW M5. That's not even a very old car, um, but that car has 500 miles on it. It's a model that BMW no longer makes anymore. Um, and that sold for almost $180,000, which is way over the estimate and way over what it was worth when it was new. Um, and that is just an example of a car that was in perfect condition. It had very low miles um, that people are, are guessing this is going to be a good investment for the future. So um, those were, those were good to see. I think too, um, I talked to Steve Serio, who is um, a big, uh, he owns the bond group, which is a big broker and dealer um, in Boston. And he really said, you know, people, you can't fool people up on the auction block because there's so many other ways to buy cars these days. You can buy them in private sales. You can buy them online. You can, you know, you can find whatever you want. So the cars that do go to auction have got to be very good. You're not going to fool anyone if you bring kind of a, a something with, you know, a little bit of a shoddy background or, you know, um, a maintenance history with some black holes in it. You're not going to fool people. People don't have to buy that anymore. They don't have to pay top dollar. Um, so if you have, if what you have is very good, people will spend money on it. If not, you're not going to fool anybody, which is healthy. It's good. It means consumers are smart. Yeah, that I think that's that's a strong <laughs> parallel to the art market where yeah. ideally you're trying to see that uh, same thing, the shrewdness of collectors only going after the best examples and paying the top prices for those. Um, exactly, yeah. Another kind of interesting question I wanted to ask you is regarding the individuals who are showing up at these uh, sales and these auctions and actually mm-hmm. collecting these cars in the art world. Um, we've seen, especially the last decade and even over the last five years, a really increased number presence of Asian collectors who are penetrating the mm. art market. Um, mm-hmm. They're not just collecting Asian artists, but they're also starting to collect more of the mainstream Western artists. Um, are you seeing, with with all the uh, the wealth around the world, are you seeing mm-hmm. any penetration in the classic car market from some of these outside areas that maybe a decade ago you weren't seeing buyers? That's really interesting. Um, everyone I've talked to, both at Gooding and at RM Sotheby's and at Haggerty, um, which is a, a firm that insures collected collectible cars, um, have said the biggest buyers are still in North America and number two, Europe. Um, yes, we are seeing some contingents from Asia, Asia, especially Japan, who are buying cars. There was a moment when muscle cars were really popular. Um, for Germans and for Japanese buyers. Um, But that was kind of a blip. Um, From what I heard this year uh, from two two of the biggest auction houses, Gooding and Sotheby's and then Haggerty, um, it's that really the real money is coming from North America and Europe. Um, And that has been true for for years. Yes, we do see some money from South America, um, but a lot of that is actually funneled through Miami, which is North America again. So it's a little bit vague um, in some corners of that market, but um, it is mostly American um, and North American buyers and then Europeans. It's really interesting. And you wrote about how some car companies are actually leveraging the auction week to debut new cars. What's the significance of this? And what were some of the most talked about new cars of the week? Yeah, 
this is really interesting to me, um, just in light of the fact that traditional car shows like trade shows are becoming less and less relevant as automakers are choosing to debut their best concepts and their best new cars at this Pebble Week, Pebble Beach Concord during the Monterey auctions. Um, for instance, I mean, the number one thing that I think of is Bugatti. They have a brand new car called the Devo, which is, you know, a $3 million Bugatti that they chose to debut for the first time in public ever um, on the same day as a lot of these auctions at Pebble Beach in August. I think that shows that this is where the buyers are when it comes to luxury cars. Now, when we're talking about non-luxury brands, it's a completely different thing. But for luxury brands, um, the automakers understand that the environment where these auctions are during the course of the week is very exclusive and very luxurious. I mean, people are out on golf courses, drinking champagne, dressed well, talking with their friends. It's sunny. It's summertime in California. I mean, it's a very nice atmosphere. And so automakers are realizing, wow, this is way better for trying to grasp some of the highest net worth consumers way better than being at a trade show in a convention center, you know, in Detroit or in LA in November, it's just not the same environment. Um, so like I said, Aston Martin debuted this, or sorry, Bugatti debuted this amazing Devo. Um, Mercedes showed this incredible electric concept called the EQ silver arrow. Um, you know, and it goes on and on. It's, it's really interesting to see. And in fact, you know, the Detroit Auto Show just announced they will be moving their auto show from January in Detroit to June in Detroit to try to recapture some of the automakers that are now focusing a lot of their efforts um, during Pebble Beach and Monterey Car Week. Yeah, that's interesting. It's ac- there actually is a parallel to the art world where mm. the auctions in New York in May, there are art fairs that have coordinated to occur during the same time, right around that period. And you see a lot mm-hmm. of great sh- shows at galleries during that period because all of the art collectors are in New York for the auctions. And since they're going to yeah. be there, everyone's trying to promote and sell their art during that time yeah. to them. Yeah. And I think too, like uh, another car that comes to mind is Jaguar just showed um, this E-type that they that they electrified. And this was the same car that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle drove after they got married. Um, I mean, it's going to be real. It's not a production car. It's going to be released in very small numbers. But again, Jaguar knew, okay, our prime customer for these cars, I mean, they're going to make like 25 of them or something very small are going to be at Pebble beach. Um, so it, and of course, you know, they want to associate um, their high end car with, okay, we have royalty associated with it now, and now the world's wealthiest collectors. It's kind of the same thing. It does make sense. And so lastly, to kind of close the gap between the art world and the classic car market, do you have any sense if we're seeing some collectors who are collecting both art and cars, or do you feel like they're kind of two different worlds and there really isn't that much overlap between collectors of each of them? You know, I I, I may be biased on this question, but I have always operated under the assumption that it's the same buyer. Um, basically I, you know, at Bloomberg, I, I do not write for, you know, really diehard enthusiasts. I write for wealthy people who are investing in any number of things. It could be a piece of art. It could be a car. It could be a watch. It could be a bottle of wine. It could be a hotel or a, a very expensive trip. So to answer your question, I think 
you know, in my mind, it's the same buyer. These people um, uh, have many investments and many assets. Cars are part of that, um, but they also know their way around uh, art auctions, museums, um, vineyards, um, any number of other uh, investment type purchases. Hannah, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast and recapping the Monterey auctions for us and just um, helping us understand the classic car market a little bit better and where things are at the moment. Um, There are a lot of interesting trends that you pointed out and we'll definitely be following along. Um, And if our listeners don't already, they should definitely check out all of your writing on Bloomberg. And you're also on Twitter tweeting often about uh, the car market and other luxury goods. If our listeners don't follow you already, what's your Twitter handle? Um, my Twitter is just my name, Hannah Elliott, with two L's and two T's. So real easy, at Hannah Elliott. Perfect. Hannah, thanks so much again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was great.